0: Rick Zamperin in for Bill Kelly once again on the latest Bill Kelly Show podcast. Two Hamilton defense lawyers say the rate of overdose is so scary at the Barton Street Jail, it should be a factor considered in bail hearings. There's more than a month to go before the end of the school year in Hamilton, and the local public school board has already blown through its budget to cover sick days. The Hamilton Spectator is looking for a new home and losing a bunch of jobs after Torstar announced it's closing the Hamilton Printing and Mailroom Operations at 44 Frid Street. And Theresa May says she's going to step down as UK Conservative Party leader on June 7th. It's sparking a contest to become Britain's next prime minister.
1: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: Two Hamilton defense lawyers say the rate of overdose is so scary, is so outrageous at the Hamilton Wentworth Detention Center that it should be a factor in bail hearings. The two lawyers are Kim Edward and Peter Boushey. They say this is a situation that the Hamilton Criminal Lawyers Association should be raising. You've heard the stories. In the last week, Hamilton paramedics have been called to the Barton Street Jail for seven suspected overdoses, six of them women. This is in the last week. There's been 20 potential overdoses at that facility so far this year. Three of those have been fatal. The Ontario Office of the uh, Chief Coroner says the Barton Street Jail has more overdose deaths than any other detention center in Ontario. This is a problem. We know this. Eleven people have died from drug overdoses at the Barton Street Jail between 2010 and 2017. That's almost triple the number of the next closest facility, and at least five more have died since 2017. Let's bring on our first guest of the day, Wade Poziamka, lawyer with Ross and McBride, and he joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Wade, how are you? thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Should justices and judges uh, consider the overdose situation at the Hamilton-Wentworth Detention Center when deciding whether or not accused people should get bail?
2: I mean, look, to me that's a bit of a bizarre argument. Isn't the real answer to fix the problem? What about those who can't get bail? Are we really willing to say that we're going to accept the amount of drugs getting into these institutions and the ineffectiveness of the Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services and ensuring safety?
0: That's a great point. I mean, we're not, in, in what these two lawyers are calling for, we're not really addressing the problem.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. The problem is, we've, we've known this has been a problem since at least 2010. The last decade, we've gone through a number of inquests I was involved in the super inquest in Hamilton, so I saw what happened there. We have recommendations, but the the death rate's not slowing down. We've had five since 2017 from overdoses in the facility. And so uh, the real problem is, is that we're incarcerating people and we're not ensuring their safety. They're going into the jail and they're dying.
0: There, there were 62 recommendations that came out of that super inquest that you mentioned. The provincial government says it's implemented 80% of those recommendations. Have they implemented the ones that are going to make or supposed to make a difference?
2: That I don't know. I, I, I You know, I'm going into an inquest shortly for um, a death that happened uh, in the last couple of years, and that's Brennan Boley. So what we plan on raising in that inquest, is that the inquest process itself might be flawed. It's not, being, it's not effective in preventing overdose deaths in these facilities. And so a lot of these uh, recommendations come from the ministry themselves as well. They'll take part in the, the inquest process, and some of the more aggressive recommendations are often opposed and not put to a jury um, or not, not made into recommendations. And So the process isn't working, and so we need to find an answer to fix it. Uh, I don't know what that is, but uh, it's certainly not the recommendation process, which are, are of course, voluntary.
0: Given the situation at the Barton Street Jail, if you have a client who is going to be incarcerated in that facility, can you request from a judge or a justice of the peace that that individual is placed somewhere else, given what is happening?
2: I suppose you can, but again, I I wouldn't want to get caught up into that that type of argument, that we have this facility where people are going in and they're not coming out, so let's look at putting them in other facilities, right? Let's fix the problem and and make sure that people who do go into the detention center do come out.
0: What's been uh, your uh, relationship with victims' families or inmates' families who are probably just as concerned as anyone else regarding their loved ones in the Barton Street Jail?
2: It's heartbreaking. I've sat in meetings where I've looked at pictures of the bodies of loved ones with their family members, and they don't have the answers. They don't understand what happened. A loved one goes in, and they don't come out, and you don't know exactly what happened. You don't know why medical treatment wasn't offered in time. You don't know how the drugs are getting in there. There's a lot of unanswered questions that people have to deal with, and the problem's continuing, if not growing.
0: We're chatting with uh, Wade Poziamka, lawyer with Ross and McBride, here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Bill. Two Hamilton defense lawyers say the rate of overdose is uh, so scary at the Barton Street Jail. It should be a factor considered in bail hearings. Um, you brought up the point that you know we should be fixing the problem. What do you think is the problem? How are these drugs getting in the jail?
2: That's a that's a good uh, a good. That's a million dollar question. A problem, right? yeah. They have scanners that they use when someone comes into a jail. My understanding from the last inquest I was involved in is that they're often not working or they're not entirely effective. Um, I, you know, I, I I don't want to draw conclusions here, but I can't believe that the correctional officers wouldn't know the extent of the drug problem in these facilities when you have this many overdoses. Um, So I call that into question as well. I think that's something we really have to look hard at. Uh, Is there a real effort to eliminate this problem in the facilities? And if if they can't do that for some reason, what is that reason? Let's address that.
0: Yeah, because if it was a systemic issue, this would be going on at every jail, every prison in this country. But it's not. So, I mean, what's happening here? that, 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 to me, is the biggest question of all.
2: Yeah, the rate being three times higher then the next highest facility is uh, should cause some question marks. And to be frank, there should be much more happening at the ministry in relation to the Barton Street facility than there is. It seems, you know, we, we go through these inquests, we have these recommendations, they implement some of them, but if the problem's not being fixed, it obviously isn't enough, and there needs to be more aggressive measures taken
0: have you had any clients and and who knows this might start start now uh, who have said uh, hey listen uh, i don't mind going to jail but just not this place put me somewhere else
2: um i, I think family members of of uh, people who are being incarcerated sure certainly share that sentiment so i practice predominantly in human rights and so I, i'll get involved in the inquest from a kind of human rights charter perspective Um, and that's my involvement in this process, but I don't deal directly with the criminal law aspect of it.
0: You mentioned uh, the other inquest that you're going to be involved in that is basically might show that the inquest process itself is flawed. How's that going to take place, and where is that taking place?
2: So that will take place in Hamilton. I anticipate that will take place in the next year. We don't have a date yet, and part of the reason we don't have a date yet is we've asked the coroner's office to consider laying criminal charges against some of the uh, correctional officers in the facility or the medical staff for what happened. And so that delays the process a little bit. But from my perspective, if you have people who've failed to do their job to such a degree and it results in somebody's death, that should be a criminal matter.
0: Is everyone in that facility named in that lawsuit?
2: Uh, So it's not a lawsuit at this point. Um, It's simply a request to the coroner's office, who's overseeing the inquest process, that they refer the matter to the Crown Attorney to consider laying criminal charges the matter.
0: And your best guess is that could begin within a year. So what needs to happen before it begins?
2: So there'll be an investigation. There's a, a detective who's been assigned from the OPP to the coroner's office who goes and gathers all of the information, and they prepare a coroner's brief or package, and that's what's used. Uh, in the inquest process, and in uh, and what the jury will have access to, and when we make our request for recommendations.
0: Well, well, we'll certainly stay on top of that. Best of luck uh, with that, Wade, and uh, appreciate the time this morning.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Rick.
0: Wade Paziamka, lawyer with Ross and McBride, chatting about uh, these two Hamilton defense lawyers, Kim Edward and Peter Bushy, saying that th- the overdose rate at the Hamilton, <clears throat> pardon me, detention uh, Hamilton Wentworth detention center is. Uh, So scary, so outrageous. These are the words that they are using uh, that, uh, you know, this should be a factor in bail hearings. And they're calling on the Criminal Lawyers Association to sound the alarm bell to get the attention, uh, I guess, primarily, number one, of judges and justices. And by extension, the provincial government and and the Ministry of Correction Services. To get a handle on this. Because this, this is outrageous. This is scary. When you think about it, I mean, this is a detention center. This isn't a federal prison. And even if it were, I mean, again, how are those illicit, powerful, life-altering drugs getting in that facility? How come it's not happening in, well, to the same degree in places like London? Or, or anywhere across the country, it doesn't just have to be in this province or in this general area. Be interesting to see how this uh, other inquest uh, progresses, and if it does get to that final stage, that'll be uh, extremely interesting. When you're now talking about individuals, corrections officials in the jail being subjected to testify, uh, there could be some fireworks. <laughs>
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900
0: CHML. (sighs) There's more than a month to go before the end of the school year, and the Hamilton Public School Board has already exhausted its budget to cover six days. $16.8 million that has been set aside for quote-unquote temporary assistance is now gone. The employee sick day's budget is half a million dollars over budget, And now the board has to dip into contingency or emergency funds to cover the overage. Now, if you recall, the previous liberal government scrapped a provision back in 2012 that allowed teachers to bank their sick days and get a payout when they retired. Back in 2016, so just three years ago, a board review found that Hamilton's public school teachers took an average of 13 sick days a year, three more than the provincial average. Let's bring it on our next guest, Don Danko, Ward Seven trustee with the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, also the chair of the Finance and Facilities Committee, and she joins us now. Don, good morning.
3: Good morning, Rick. How are you?
0: Not too bad. Yourself?
3: I'm good, enjoying the nice weather.
0: It is very nice. I'm not sure how many teachers have called in sick today because it's so nice. But well,
3: my what, kids are at school, so so far uh, we haven't had any sick calls at their school.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good sign. <laughs> my son woke up this morning with a sore throat, and I was tempted to say, do you want to stay home? But then I said, hey, take some DayQuil, you'll be fine, and uh, lo and behold, he's at school. But an average of 13 sick days a year to me is outrageous.
3: Well, and I think people that are in different sectors would maybe say the same. I, I know I come from healthcare, and so um, it was a bit of a surprise to me that it might be that high, but I think you also have to think about the context. So they staff actually have 10 sick days allocated to them. Um, and you mentioned that in 2012, the Liberal government uh, changed the rules. And so they used to be able to bank on you sick time and get paid out on retirement, and that changed. Um, so we did see an uptake in, in the use of sick days. Um, I often think about why would the, the numbers be so high? And I want, well, you're on the air, um, so you're, you're on when you're working. And I'm thinking, what would it be like to be in front of a classroom of anywhere from, you know, 21 to 30 kids, depending on the grade, um, and being on <laughs> and being your, your best self all day, every day. And then you have children like yours who maybe are getting sick, who just went to school, even if they had DayQuil, um, and, and are possibly spreading Germs in a way that doesn't happen in a lot of uh, other industries. So I think we need to respect that there are different risks um, when you're in that position and you're, you're, you're teaching or you're student-facing or you're working in a school environment. Um, but it is something that, that we have concerns about and we've been working with our union partners. Um, we've been working through different processes to try to support employees and try to get those numbers down over the past few years.
0: Well, two things. I think you're being very kind, and I I can understand why you're doing so in the the position you're in. Uh, Number two, uh, we have 10 sick days here at Chorus Radio. I can't remember the last time I took a sick day, uh, but that's just me. Um, Number three, and you know what? I I couldn't be a teacher, so I'm not throwing teachers under the bus, but I'm just saying that this number is just a little too high, and it's it's too high because it's having a budgetary impact. And at the end of the day, uh, whether we pay for teachers to take a payout at the end of their careers or... Uh, take a day off, at the end of the day, we as taxpayers are still paying that.
3: Yes, and, and part of the the cost are if I were to call in sick, um, you know, in, in my usual job right now, I don't need to be replaced on a regular day. Um, I'm sure you do, uh, but for a teacher who's student-facing or for any of the staff that are in our schools, we need to replace them uh, whenever possible. And so the replacement cost, we're, we're paying out their salary, but then paying a, a, a replacement cost. And that's where those significant costs really start to bloom.
0: We're chatting with Don Danko, Ward 7 trustee, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, also the chair of the Finance and Facilities Committee here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill. We all know that the Ford government is cutting and slashing. They'll obviously, uh, this is going to be a big part of contract negotiations with teachers unions this summer with their contracts set to expire at the end of August. Um, Are you anticipating any trouble with those contract negotiations, knowing that this kind of issue is probably going to be, you know, front and center?
3: (laughs) That is a loaded question, I think. Um, Of course, we're hoping that negotiations go smoothly. In the current climate, uh, do I anticipate some challenges? Personally, yes, I do. I know that we're in a very challenging budget here from a finance and facilities perspective, and uh, flow of information has not been ideal Um, From that committee's perspective, so hopefully uh, things go a little more smoothly for collective bargaining, but yes, I do anticipate some challenges.
0: With the provincial government asking school boards, maybe maybe more so asking, more so demanding school boards to trim their budgets, is that temporary assistance budget or, or the sick days budget going to be looked at?
3: So we did recently uh, look at our budget for next year, and I guess to to look at how do we set that budget year over year, um, every year we we look at what is the current usage, so starting at where are we, what are the number of days that are being used, what are the supply costs, um, what are the replacement costs for different employees, and then we we go from that point forward saying what are we doing to try to reduce those numbers, and we do have um, an attendance support plan in place, Um, we put one in place in 2016. We have seen some improvements um, in the past year in numbers of of employees who have called in sick, and so those those average number of days has gone down. I don't have the numbers in front of me. But, again, what are we doing going forward to try to continue to improve that? And it's really um, that, that program's about educating staff about when do you take a sick day versus a personal leave versus another type of of leave. There are a number of different leaves that are available for, for different things. Um, when do or how, how do people call in sick when someone's on a long-term disability? How do we support them in getting back to work in a timely manner in a supportive way? Not, We're not trying to get sick employees back to work. Um, so we're working with our union partners to, to try to make make some, some headway here in reducing the sick leave. And then we have to look at the other factors. So although we've had some reductions in the number of employees in some groups the number of states have taken on average, we're actually seeing our costs go up because the average salary has gone up year-over-year know, due to collective agreements that were established in the last round of bargaining. We also know that um, we've had better rates of replacement, so in some cases we can't replace a teacher or an EA or a clerical staff. And so we've done things to make sure that those people are critical. We need them in the classroom and in our schools. Um, we've looked at what are ways to make sure that we're replacing them. We've done a good job of that, but that costs us more money. So all of those factors are taken into account going into the next budget year, and then we make our best guess for what will this cost us next
0: year. That's a great answer. Uh, 13 sick days a year uh, on average in 2016 at the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board. How confident are you that that number can be trimmed in the years going forward?
3: Well, I think it has to. I I don't think it's an option to say the status quo is okay. Um, I am confident. I know that um, just based on the discussions that I understand that our union groups have been having with our board staff, there's a lot of cooperation there. There's a lot of collaboration there. So I, I think everybody wants a strong, healthy workforce. They want to make sure that people are able to be at work as much as possible and, and supporting our students. Um, we want what's in the best interest of the students, which is that consistency at school. Um, so I, I think with that collaborative mindset, we can make headway. It's, just, it's a matter of what are the right steps and the right processes that need to be in place, and we're working through that right now.
0: Don, really appreciate the time. There are no easy answers with this uh, issue, that's for sure. But, uh, again, thanks for sharing some of your thoughts with us this morning.
3: Thank you, Rick. Have
0: a great day. You too. Don Denko, Ward 7 trustee, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board, also the chair of the Finance and Facilities Committee. Not sure how many, you, how many sick days you take per year, but I'm going to guess it's probably less than 13. And I understand that, hey, teachers have a tough job. I could not be a teacher. Having 20 or 30 screaming kids going at me, whether it's JK or grade 8 or in high school or college or university, no thank you. But 13 sick days a year, that's a little too much. That's a lot too much.
1: Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: Huge news uh, from the Hamilton Spectator this morning. It's uh, now looking for a new home, roughly 180 people looking for new jobs. All of this after Torstar Corporation announced it's closing the Hamilton Printing and Mailroom Operations at 44 Fred Street. It says that closure will happen on or around August 24th. Uh, here to shed some light on what this means to uh, not only the Hamilton Spectator but the, the community... Is Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, joining us in studio? Thanks for coming in.
1: Glad to be here.
0: So, th- this was a wow kind of moment today.
1: It was. I, I, I'll have to give you two different answers to this. I wasn't expecting to wake up today and see this story. But on the other hand, I'm not completely surprised that it's happening. Uh, generally speaking, newspapers across the country are seeing their readership diminish. Yeah. Not hugely. It's not going down by 100% or 50%, but, you know, 4 or 5% a year. And certainly the students I teach at McMaster, uh, if they pay attention to a newspaper at all, it's only in digital form. And you can produce digital newspapers with a lot less infrastructure than you can with printed newspapers. So if I can take you back 15 years ago, uh, big bombshell news was when the Brantford Expositor stopped printing newspapers in Brantford and shifted their production to Hamilton. And this was seen as centralizing and justification of the infrastructure involved. And this is what today's announcement is. a Torstar, who owns... The Hamilton Spectator has said, we're still going to print a newspaper, but we're going to centralize all our printing and and basically subcontract it to a company called Transcontinental. Uh, To be perfectly candid, they have plants in Brampton and Vaughan and a few other places, so I'm not just sure which specific plant is going to be producing this, but this also matches what Toronto Star did two years, three years ago, excuse me, in 2016 when they ceased their printing presses at the foot of Young Street. Still a building there and they still have people there, but the printing presses are gone. They they subcontracted to transcontinental. So this is a continuation of this looking for cost efficiencies, looking to keep their, their costs down while the revenues from ads, you know, stay where they are kind of flat year over year and uh, the bad news of course as you point out people are losing jobs the good news is the spectator still going to be here but probably in a less iconic building and perhaps maybe this could be good news maybe they'll be moving downtown into a lovely renovated space teeming with the urban hip vibe or something like that so your reporters that you know and love including a chml person scott radley who does the evening shows here you know i think they'll still be here and they'll still be doing journalism it's just that the paper won't be printed here anymore
0: you mentioned it the 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 newspaper industry, where it's been, where it's going, uh, it, it seems like this was only a matter of time uh, before this was going to happen. What do you think is going to happen with the building? Who who could move in there, or what could move in there?
1: Well, I think the first thing to note is the, the Spectator building, at least since my time period here in Hamilton. Uh, I When I moved to Hamilton, the Spectator was downtown, and everyone remembered it being downtown, and then it moved out You moved out, out, oh, all that way out into West Hamilton (laughs) uh, into this new new building at that time. Uh, The great thing about the Spectator building today is that it has access to the 403. So I can easily imagine a company who uh, wants some space, wants to have that kind of connection. Uh, On the other hand, um, I'll throw a weird one out there. Who knows what McMaster might want to do? McMaster, my employer... Uh, has the Innovation Park on Longwood. Well, Frid in that area isn't that far away. We we need office space to do research and what have you. And I think any number of people will be attracted to that space. So I don't think it's going to sit vacant for... 10 20 30 years I'm sure somebody will move into it sooner rather than later and it's not really appropriate space for a warehouse so that means a more active space more jobs coming in there but they won't be of a printing nature so there'll be no transition from the one group of people to the next
0: is it a facility that can be kind of partitioned and several businesses can be there
1: it could. Uh, uh, I'd have to know a little more. There's a central um, there's a central stairway that runs through the building, but I think only one set of elevators, mm-hmm. so you'd have to figure out a way to do that. I don't really think it's appropriate for condo development, so I don't think anyone's going to rush in and try to do a, a commercial to residential conversion. But we have been told over and over again that uh, commercial real estate is a bit of a scarce commodity here in Hamilton, and that if you really need industrial slash commercial space you've got to look at the south mountain uh, say off Rymel Road or, or at least south of the Lincoln Alexander Parkway. Uh, so I think, it, I think it will turn over fairly quickly and and that's another part to the story. Not only do they save some money, but they get a cash injection when they sell that building. But it does mean a disruption of people and that's you know people get used to, we get used to the way we commute in the morning, we get used to the way we park the car and stop for a cup of coffee and, and disruption is, is not a happy thing but it is part of the evolution in a digital medium.
0: We're in May. This is going to happen on or about August twenty fourth, according to Torstar. Is that is that quick in industry standards?
1: Um in in a sense, like I, I would tell you they, they probably had much of this worked out a week or two ago and then right. waited till today to make the announcement. You you don't uh, the, the kind of volumes of printing we'd be talking about for transcontinental printing are just not easily transferable on a dime. So you'd have to negotiate this um I think the interesting question is whether the in, internal people got word of this, say, yesterday, and we're only learning about this today. I would hate to think, I would hate to think that people woke up this morning with the spectator and discovered this as a front page story, and that was the way they were briefed. I'd like to believe Torstar is better managed than yeah. that. So, uh, three months, no, that's, that's a pretty decent period of time, at least to move your operations. Whether the building will be sold in that three month period, it could take until the end of the year. But in that, in that scoop of things, it's still a, just a heartbeat.
0: Uh, president and CEO of TORSTAR John Boynton saying that the, the spec isn't going anywhere, and I think that's encouraging for yes. not only the employees that are there that, that are still going to be there, but the readers of the newspaper as well.
1: Yes, and the Hamilton Spectator, I should note this, has kind of bucked uh, the national trend. In other words, with readership numbers going down for something like the Toronto Star and even the Globe and Mail, uh the Spectator has, if anything, had gone through a bit of a renaissance in recent years, that its, its readership had gone up ever so slightly, uh, or at least had bucked the trend of going down. And I give great credit to Paul Burton, uh, the editor, the publishers, etc., that they found a way to stay relevant. And um, they are still doing great journalism. We think of the Code Red series, for instance, exposing some of the challenges in, in Hamilton's poor neighborhoods. Uh, we think of the work they did around the Red Hill Expressway, exposing the... the, the, the um, dubious quality of of asphalt in those areas. They're still doing great journalism there, so they are still quite relevant. And I think in that way, by hyperemphasizing their connections to Hamilton, they remain relevant. The problem, though, is still these people who are 20 to 30 years of age, usually childless, I find that having children suddenly gets you interested in your local news because you need to know what's open, what's closed, what have you. But if you're a footloose and fancy-free 25-year-old, you don't feel you need a newspaper. And so so, the time that we start to adopt has shifted to an older age, but I think they're still quite relevant.
0: We could run. Very much appreciate you coming in today. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Thank you. I will. Marvin Reiner uh, from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster
4: University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I will resign as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party on Friday, the 7th of June, so that a successor can be chosen. I do so with no ill will but with enormous and enduring gratitude to have had the opportunity to serve the country I love. I've agreed with the party chairman and with the chairman of the 1922 committee that the process for electing a new leader should begin in the following week. It is and will always remain a matter of deep regret to me that I have not been able to deliver Brexit. I have done everything I can to convince MPs to back that deal. Sadly... I have not been able to do so. I tried three times. Welcome
0: back to the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Rick imprint in for Bill. Theresa May out as UK PM. Well, not out immediately. It's going to happen on June the 7th, and it's going to spark a contest to become Britain's next prime minister. Now, pressure on May to quit over her failure to get Parliament's approval for a European Union divorce deal reached a critical point this week. Uh, There was a senior minister who quit. Several cabinet colleagues expressed doubts about uh, her latest Brexit bill, which has changed a number of times. Uh, Britain currently due to leave the EU on October 31st, however, As you probably know, if you're following this, Parliament has yet to approve divorce terms. Let's bring in Dr. Andrew Glencross, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Aston University in Birmingham, England. And he joins us now on The Bill Kelly Show. Dr. Glencross, hello, how are you today?
5: Very well, thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us. Uh, Should we be surprised at uh, Ms. May's departure?
5: No, I mean, despite how tragic it all was in this press conference, it was totally inevitable. And in fact, the former chancellor, George Osborne, had said she was a dead woman walking already after the 2017 election. So it's been really a steep decline since then.
0: Did she stay on too long? Has she has she hurt the Brexit uh, process?
5: The Brexit process more likely hurt her because you saw how emotional she was by the end, and she really has a sense of public service, and in many ways, this was a sign of how she was broken by this process, but the problem is that structurally that process is very likely to break her successor as well.
0: So she's stepping down as UK Conservative Party leader on June the 7th, and that's obviously going to spark a leadership race and, uh, and another election. Uh, what's your best guess as how this plays out?
5: Well, there's the internal Conservative Party politics side of things, and there the front-runner amongst the real membership base is Boris Johnson, but whoever becomes the actual leader of the Conservatives, they still need to be able to have the confidence of Parliament, and Parliament is based on a very split system whereby there is no majority just with Conservative members of Parliament, and so it's not clear that someone like Boris Johnson could actually have the confidence of Parliament. So, we could be heading to a general election on that basis.
0: He's a former foreign secretary. He's a strong, has been a strong champion of Brexit. Is is it his job to lose? Does he have to do a lot of convincing, do you think?
5: He is in poll position, but one of the tendencies of um, past Conservative Party elections is that actually the front runner can suddenly fade away if, for instance, there is someone that seems more of a compromise, more um, a across the board and because we're going to see the results of the European parliamentary elections on Sunday night there might be the need to have someone who's more conciliatory with the general public let's say.
0: Our guest is Dr. Andrew Glencross, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Aston University in Birmingham, England. How does this affect the Brexit negotiations themselves?
5: Well The EU has always said, it doesn't matter who's in charge in the UK, it's this deal or nothing. And so on that basis, the successor to Theresa May can talk a good game about trying to renegotiate that divorce settlement. But so far, the EU has always been consistent, saying that's the only deal on offer. And on that basis, this actual change won't change the nature of that process but it might just extend it further beyond the 31st of october that you mentioned
0: safe to say the the failure to execute an exit from the eu is going to be theresa may's legacy
5: very much so and in many ways her speech today was was like someone reading their own eulogy at their own funeral and she did say how much she regretted not being able to fulfill the mandate of the referendum but the problem is it's not clear exactly the kind of Brexit that people wanted when they voted in 2016, and that's going to be the, the real task for her successor. But it may not even be possible to I was, find some agreement.
0: I was going to say, is that achievable? Is that deal? Is that uh, concept still achievable?
5: It may only be achievable, ironically, by having another vote on it, by giving the people another chance to really say, look, after all we've learned since trying to implement this, Following the vote originally in 2016, what do you think is the best option now?
0: Would that push the October 31st deadline uh, a little further down the road, though?
5: Very much. This would be another way of um, scrounging some more time out of the whole process. And that's a decision that ultimately only the EU can actually agree to. But all things seem to point towards the EU being happy to extend another time.
0: All eyes certainly on the United Kingdom today with the latest developments with uh, Ms. May's departure. Dr. Glen Cross, thank you for the time today. My pleasure. Dr. Andrew Glencross, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Politics and International Relations at Ashton University in Birmingham, England. Joining us uh, to talk about Theresa May's departure not only as uh, UK Conservative Party leader, but of course the uh, Prime Minister, of the uk lots still to come on that front with uh, the brexit deadline or at least the, the newest or latest deadline being october 31st and man oh man if they have another vote uh, we might not be seeing a a brexit execution until uh, 2020 that's probably in all likelihood what is going to
1: happen <laughs> The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey,
0: thanks for listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends about it, and don't forget to rate and review.